Exodus. We're continuing our walk through Exodus, and actually, I'm not going to, I don't think I can make it all the way through 17.7 today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I haven't been feeling great this week, lots of coughing, and so I just don't know that my voice is going to be able to persevere. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to, if you look at your outline there, we're going to talk about one of the stories this morning, uh, the story about bitter water. And I'm going to take a quick second here to think about how I'm going to do that, if you would just give me a moment. Um, This is risky, so... Uh, those of you that love structure and love to know where I'm going, it could get a little dicey this morning. Um, so what we're going to need you to do is listen extra well. And so usually I preach long enough that you're able to take a quick vacation, you know, daydream about where you're going to lunch, and then tune back in later on and still get the point of the sermon. But this morning, I'm going to be preaching probably far less, unless I start rambling, which you, know, you never know. At any rate, you're going to need to listen well this morning, and, and we'll ask God uh, to help us with that. So we're going to do Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. When I was in college, I had a buddy of mine come to me one day. He was a junior in college at the time. And he, he said to me, Justin, I'm going to ask my girlfriend's father if I can marry her. And I said, this sounds like a good idea. You guys have been dating around two years. It's probably getting to be about that time. And so later that, that day, or later the week, whenever he talked to him, I can't quite remember now, fuzzy on the details, uh, he comes back to me a little dejected, and I say, hey, what, what happened? He said, well, I went to talk to him, I told him my desire to, to marry his daughter, and he looked at me, and he said, no, no. And I said, well, why? That sounds crazy. You're a good guy. What's, what's not to like? And he said, well, he said, I didn't have a job or a place to live, and, and I had not yet proven myself worthy of his daughter. And, and I think his father's point really was that he wanted my buddy to prove his heart for his daughter, prove his devotion to her, that he could take care of her. And this is a story about my friend, all right? It's not about me, not one of those, I had a buddy, and then it's really me. So those of you that know, I, I guess I, I did, I was told no by a father in asking if I could marry, but she's not my wife now, so. <laughs> and that's why I usually have these things written down. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, the, the, the question of the girl's father was, can you provide for my daughter? And likewise, in our text today, we're going to come across a similar question from Israel. They are asking God, that's, this is the deep question of their hearts, can you provide for our needs? And if you've been with us through Exodus, you know the answer is, uh, yeah, right? Uh, to recap a little bit, God's people were enslaved to the Egyptians. Pharaoh was killing them first. He tried to marginalize them by slavery, then by genocide, first secret, then explicit, by tossing the young boys into the Nile. But all that time, while Pharaoh was trying to overcome God, God was sovereignly working. As much as the people were oppressed, God was flourishing them. He was multiplying them. And in the midst of that oppression, he rose up a leader after the likeness of Noah, he was found in an ark, escaping the waters of death. His name was Moses, and Moses lived uh, among Pharaoh's people. He was royalty, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, but he still identified with the Hebrew people to, the, to such a point that he actually killed a guy one day, the, an Egyptian, in fact, 
buried him in the sand, and then Pharaoh found out he got sent into exile for a really long time. And you remember at the beginning of chapter 3 there, he's tending his father-in-law's sheep, which is not a great job, and Egyptians really thumb their noses at it. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep, living in his father-in-law's basement, and then all of a sudden, God shows up. It's that bush, that burning bush, that though it burns, it's not consumed and this is, again, I always say it's before the days of those fake logs that burn and aren't consumed. And so it's really miraculous to Moses. And God says, I'm going to make good on my promise to deliver the people. And Moses says, that sounds great. And then he says, I'm going to use you to do it, Moses. I'm going to free him. Therefore, I'm sending you. And Moses says, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I don't think you want me. And he objects to God five times. And finally, it culminates in chapter four when Moses says, God, just send someone else. But God doesn't send someone else. He sends Moses in order to show his power is made perfect in weakness. Ultimately, through the ten plagues, we see God's glory and his superiority to all the Egyptian gods and to all the nations displayed. He shows us over and over again he's greater than the gods of the Egyptians. Remember, we have the Passover scene in chapter 10 where he he also shows that though he is a God that judges, he's a merciful God. And salvation comes to all those who take shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, the Egyptians that uh, do not take shelter by putting the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts of their houses, they have, they're destroyed by the one called the destroyer. The firstborn of their homes is killed. And if you remember, uh, we talked about the firstborn represents the whole family in ancient culture. And we had asked this question about the Lamb. Why, how can a Lamb take the place of human lives, right? Not that valuable. We looked back to Genesis 12 when uh, Abraham was looking for a lamb to take the place of Isaac and one never shows up. And so we said, where is the lamb? And then uh, we said, how can a lamb take the place of human lives? And then we walked all the way forward in Mark when Jesus shows up and they're celebrating the Passover and this odd thing goes on where there's no lamb on the table. And Jesus told everybody, he says, this is my body. This is my blood. And and all at once, all those questions are answered, right? The disciples recognize there's no lamb on the table because the lamb of God is at the table. And so they have that question answered that Abraham asked way back when. He said, God's going to provide a lamb. And then at the end of the chapter, we're like, where's the lamb at? Here he is. Jesus has showed up. How can a lamb take the place of human lives? He's God. And therefore, he's infinitely valuable. God spares his people in mercy by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus Christ. And so he delivers them out of Egypt miraculously. And then last week we saw him do this really awkward thing where he takes the people of Israel the long way around. He says, we can go the shortcut way to where we're going, but uh, the Philistines are there. Y'all aren't ready for battle yet. And so we're just going to kind of wander out here, not quite in the wilderness, and then we're going to make camp right by the Red Sea. And Pharaoh sees this, he feels like he's being taunted, and he's like, I maybe made a mistake. And so he goes back out after Israel, and he's got all his chariots. We said it's a little bit like the United States attacking the the smallest nation on earth, which I think is Morocco, Monaco, I can't remember, I googled it. But you can google that later. And and so Israel should not have stood a chance. And what happened was, again, God showed up. And the Red Sea is split, and Israel walks through unto their salvation, and the waves come crashing down on the Egyptians, and it consumes them. God shows he is a righteous judge, but he's also a merciful one, that those who come to him by faith can be saved. Saved from slavery and into freedom. Saved from serving counterfeit gods like the gods in Egypt to serving the one true God. 
being able to enjoy the happiness and satisfaction that's found only in right relationship with him. So yes, God can save his people. And they came out singing. He's brought his people out of Egypt with singing. He, he had broke their chains. But finally, though they're out of Egypt, we discover that Egypt is not yet out of the people. The joy of their salvation quickly grows cold. And their songs turn into discontented sighs. That praise is changed into complaining. Can God meet their needs? Yes! But even after all of his past faithfulness, the people are still not convinced. They still want God to prove himself. The irony, though, here is that he's not the one that needs to prove his devotion. God is going to use the wilderness to make clear his loyal love for the people and to shape his people's hearts after his own. And one of the things we see in all three stories, we're going to examine the others next week, is there's a need of the people, which actually comes as a test to the people. And the people grumble and complain. And God gives them grace and shows himself faithful. And so as we consider the story about bitter water this morning, I think the main idea is this. And it'll be our main idea next time we talk about Exodus 2. So you can really learn this one. God does not provide for his people because they are faithful, but because he is faithful. That's what we're going to learn. Let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll get into the text a little bit. Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. I need you especially. I pray that I might be the conduit through which you would speak your words to your people. Pray that you would give us ears that we might listen well, and that you would make our hearts good soil, that the seeds of the gospel might grow up and flourish. Help us to hear you today, to submit ourselves to your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the people of Israel are making their way through the desert on this three-day journey, and they, I imagine they started out with skins of water, a little camel pack action, if you've seen those going in. Yeah, and so they're, they're going through the desert, they're drinking the water, they're fine, they've watered their animals, but time has passed, and you know if you've ever taken a camel pack or a water bottle anywhere, eventually you've got to refill, refill that bad boy. And so imagine you've been walking through the wilderness, and it's been a really long time, you're in desperate need of water, and off in the distance, you see the place to which you are going. And so you say, it's not that much further. And so you drain the rest of your water. You, know, you splash some of it on your face because you can tell there's water up ahead. And that's what Israel does. But what happens when they get there is they realize the water is bitter, undrinkable. And so all of their daydreaming about plunging their head beneath the surface of the water and then slaking their thirst with a sip from it before uh, watering their um, donkeys and, and whatever livestock they had, they all come crashing down. And all of a sudden, it becomes apparent there's a problem here. And they panic a little bit. They get angry. We see in verse 24 of chapter 15, this is how they respond. The people grumbled to Moses. What are we going to drink. I mean, this is a valid question, right? People need water to live. They're going to need water to survive. There is a difference, though, between having a um, legitimate concern and asking the question in a right way 
and whining, right? I tell my kids this all the time. For example, there's a difference between when my boy asks me, Daddy, may I please have a glass of milk? Like, well, certainly, son. Yeah, right away. No problem. And when he, like, gets on the floor and is like, milk, I need milk, right? There's a right way to ask, and there is a wrong way to ask. It's not a problem with expressing a concern, but how that concern is expressed makes all the difference in the world. Israel's concern is indeed reasonable, but the way they express that concern is inappropriate and sinful, for it demonstrates a lack of confidence in God's ability to provide. The, what, what I'm interested in now, because they're grumbling, we'll deal with next week. I'm interested in what, the why beneath their bad attitudes. I mean, you would expect after they've seen all the signs and wonders that God has done in Egypt, they, they wouldn't sweat a little bit of bitter water. You expect them to simply pray to the Lord for water and expect that, that water will show up. It's not really a big deal, but instead of remembering God's past faithfulness, quite unfaithfully, they grumble against Moses. And they ask, what shall we drink? Don't you see, Moses, there's no water here. Do you lead us out here to die? They don't go to God in prayer, but they panic. I wonder, what do you do when you are faced with trouble? Do you grumble and complain? Are you filled with consuming worry that borders on the lines of panic? If you're like me, it's really easy to move from thinking about something or a situation and how I might wisely apply wisdom to that situation, like a healthy concern. It's really easy to move from that to trying to puzzle together every scenario and every possible outcome, right? If this happens, then I'll do this, and if this happens, I'll do this. You come up with all this variegated solutions to all these issues that don't even really exist, and you become consumed with worry, panic, and I think that's because control is often the idol beneath worry. We have a temptation to find contentment in our own control of a situation rather than in God's control of it. We long to control every aspect of our lives according to our wisdom because we think we know how our lives work best. Israel is certainly grumbling here because their expectation is that God would have already met this need. Why do they have this need in the first place? Doesn't God know that they need water? They think they know the way that they can truly be happy and secure. They long to control their circumstances. That's what's underneath their grumbling. They do not trust God. You know, worry is it's functional atheism at the end of the day. It's when you're acting in disbelief of God and his providence. I'm always really um, convicted when I think about how often I choose to worry instead of pray and trust. And how often do we trust in our own plans and in our own wisdom rather than God's? Simply because we can't understand what he's doing. Spurgeon used to say, uh, just because you can't trace God's hand, sorry, he used to say, you, can't, you might not be able to always trace God's hand, but you can always know his heart. What he meant by that is you might not be able to see all of God's reasons for allowing something to happen, but you can trust his character because he's good 
I always use that example from uh, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga. He says there's a bug called a noceum, wicked little things. They bite you all over, cause you to scratch. The problem is nobody can see them. And he says if you've got a tent, and inside that tent is a St. Bernard, and you unzip the tent and look in, you're going to go, there's St. Bernard in there. But if you take that same tent and you fill it with noceums and you unzip it and look in, you're going to go, nothing in there because nobody can see them, right? Likewise, God's providence, his reasons for orchestrating our lives according to his will that actually work out for our good and for his glory are not always readily apparent to us. Oftentimes, they are noceums. But just because we can't see them doesn't mean we can't trust him. Right? We're like the little kid that we talked about a few weeks ago that doesn't want to go into the dark room because there's monsters in there. And mommy and daddy say, there aren't any monsters in there. And they try to rationalize with them, try to explain it to them. And the kid's like, I don't get it. There's monsters in there. I'm not going in there. But once mommy or daddy puts their hand down and says, I'll go in with you, the child says, I know your character, mommy. I know your character, daddy. I know that you are good and that you are going to protect me and you're going to work for my benefit. And so the child walks into the room with their father, with their mother. We can trust God. Israel has problems, and so Moses, in verse 25 we read, Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the water, the water became sweet. God graciously meets the needs of the people by causing the undrinkable water to become drinkable. The question, though, becomes, but why lead them to bitter water in the first place? And we have our answer in the second part of verse 25. God made a statute and an ordinance for them at Marah, which means bitter. That's the place that they're at. And he tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his eyes, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh who heals you. Once more, we see God's judgment and mercy. If the people rebel against him, they will inherit his judgment just like the Egyptians. But if they act by faith and they follow him obediently, They will enjoy healing. They will enjoy the blessings that come along with being God's people. God here, we learn, is purposefully taking his people into situations that bring them into conflict with themselves so that they might learn to trust him instead of themselves. He's testing or training them. The word test, no doubt, conjures up images in our minds of pop quizzes and IRS audits, but this is not what the concept means in the Old Testament, right? God is not a professor looking to fail his people at the first wrong answer. It's not putting them in an unbearable situation because he's looking for an excuse to to do them in, to get them. No, the purpose of the desert test are succinctly summarized in Exodus 20.20. And this is what it says. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you. Here's the reason why the test happened. So that the fear of God will be with you. Why? To keep you from sinning. God tests his people for their benefit, not for his own. 
It is through the passing and failing of these tests that God's people learn the nature of the obedience that he requires of them. The tests in the wilderness lay bare the hearts of the people. It shows them who and what they really trust in, who and what they really believe. Tests are our tools in the hands of God that train his people to trust him instead of their counterfeit gods or themselves for their happiness and security. God has indeed taken his people out of Egypt, and now he is working to get Egypt out of his people. These wilderness tests are God's grace. They, they, they are going to shape and prove the hearts of his people. Thank goodness that God does not provide for his people because they are faithful, but because he is faithful, right? Israel proves to be miserable at passing any of these tests. I mean, 40 years, eventually they end up in the desert for 40 years because they keep disobeying God, and God says this generation's not going to get into the promised land, you're going to wander and die, and they keep failing test after test after test, but God stays with them loyally because he loves them. I mean, notice that despite their crooked attitudes, God provides for them. I mean, even in this text, right, both at Mara, where the bitter water is, and then he leads them to an oasis in verse 27. I mean, God always provides for his people. And if it's not because of their faithfulness, we might ask, why? Why does God provide for his people? I mean, we find the answer in, in Matthew 4. Look with me in Matthew 4. I turned right there. I got lucky. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. This is what we read. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into, notice where he's being led, the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, corresponds to 40 years, he was hungry. Obviously, you get hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What Matthew is communicating to us here in Matthew 4 is that where Israel has failed, Jesus, who is true Israel, succeeds. Follow? Remember, all the way back in Genesis, there's a promise made to Abraham that his offspring, singular, will bless the whole world, all the nations. Well, his offspring eventually becomes the nation of Israel, and they are to be a blessing to the world, but they fail in that task, just as they fail to pass the tests in the wilderness. But then comes the one to which the prophecy pointed, the true offspring of Abraham, the true and better Israel, Jesus Christ, 
who does not fail the tests of the wilderness. When Israel was confronted with their own hearts, when they were tested, they revealed the fact that they did not trust God. But notice when Jesus is tempted, he responds with the very words of God. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. God provides for his people. Why? Not because they are faithful, but because Jesus Christ is faithful. This always reminds me again of one of the reasons I read from Ruth this morning of Naomi who had lost her husbands and sons. She was alone in the world save for her daughter-in-law Ruth. I mean, she was hopeless. It was a hopeless situation. But like little did she know that through her emptiness, God would bring her fullness of joy. I mean, little did she know that God was using her life as a part of his plan to bring sweetness to the whole world. Little did she know that from the line of her grandson would come King David and ultimately King Jesus. Sometimes we can't see what God is doing. This is why over and over again the Bible exhorts us, don't look to what is seen, but to what is unseen. I can't help but see an illustration of this glorious gospel in our passage today. Moses is told to take a tree and to cast it into the bitter waters, and the waters become sweet. Anytime I see that word tree in the Bible, I automatically think of the cross. I think of the verse in Peter. It talks about Jesus who bore our sins on the tree so that we might live. Friends, Jesus is hung on a tree and cast into the bitterness of judgment so that we can enter into the sweetness of salvation. Can God provide for your needs? Yes. He has already met your greatest need in Christ. And your greatest need is peace with God. Your greatest need is faith in Jesus Christ. Because without it, you will find yourself like the Egyptians who would not take shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. Dead. Like the Egyptians who entered into the Red Sea without faith were crushed beneath its waves. We've been saying over and over again, a theme in Exodus is there are two ways to know God. Everybody gets to know God at the end. We either know him by his mercy or by his judgment. The Bible tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. The question is not, will you confess that Jesus is Lord? But how will you confess? With tears of joy at the grace of God because he saved you, a sinner? Or in despair as you are cast into the judgment that you deserve? You don't have to be cast into that judgment. Jesus came the first time to bear judgment in our place so that we don't have to bear it. But be advised, friends, he is coming the second time to bear the judgment of the sword. There is an expiration date on the offer of the gospel. I appeal to you, let God meet your deepest need. 
Come to Jesus Christ and drink the living water. Believe in Him. God is good. He meets not only our deepest needs, but friends, He meets our daily needs, as we'll see in the next chapter when He provides manna daily for His people. Friends, when life is bitter, you can trust God to be faithful even when you're not. He loves you. He's training you in righteousness. He's helping you to become and practice what you are declared to be in Christ when you unite yourself to him by faith. He's working out his plan in your life. He's got the whole system rigged. He knows how this world turns out. It turns out with evil crushed beneath the foot of his heel. And all of his people and his angels joining in a chorus around his throne singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. It ends with his marriage to his church. My prayer is that you would make yourself part of the bride of Christ by following Jesus and joining yourself to his church by faith. He can meet our needs. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need you. We know that time and again we, we fail to live up to your holiness because ultimately you are without equal and we are we're sinners. Often we are tempted to return to our mistress of folly, thinking that the pleasures of sin will somehow exceed the pleasures that are available at your right hand. Father, I pray that you would jettison such thought from our minds, that you would help us to taste and see that you are good, and that the deepest pleasures in this life and in the next life are found only when we trust in you, when we live life according to your design. Father, wake in our hearts to this truth this morning. Do a work in us that we might trust you with everything. That we would abandon ourselves. Indeed, that we would deny ourselves. Follow you. And inherit all that belongs to you. Because by faith in you, we get to be adopted into your family. And called sons. We thank you that you are a good and mighty king, our heavenly father, who loves us as a good mother loves her children, with patience, gentleness, and kindness. Help us to delight in this truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.